first of all, folks, can I uh, say thank you for inviting me? Uh, it's really encouraging whenever uh, you're asked to come and to speak at another congregation's uh, weekend, and I, I feel very privileged uh, to have been asked. Uh, so to Mark and the elders, uh, a sincere word of thanks. It's a great encouragement to me to be here tonight. Um, I also want to thank you folks from Letterkenny uh, sincerely on behalf of the Enniskillen folks because you very kindly gave up one of your elders to be our interim elder. And Colin uh, is very diligent and he's uh, always down for communion when he's down and Caroline comes with him. And not only that, he phones me regularly and uh, uh, probably nobody knows that but he does. He phones regularly to see how things are going in Enniskillen and that's uh, deeply appreciated and we certainly think very highly of him and thank you for that. In Philippians chapter 3, um, this isn't our reading, this is just a verse that came to my head whenever I was sitting there uh, and I was looking for it and I found it. Philippians 3.10, the Apostle Paul says about Jesus, I want to know Christ. Now, Paul wrote that as a Christian, he did know Christ. And you say, well, what did he mean by that? And I think what Paul meant was that he wanted to know more and more and more about Christ. Um, and that's what I want to try and do this evening and over the next two talks, tomorrow and God willing again on Sunday. I want us to look at what Paul uh, wrote uh, with regards to Christ in one of his letters. And it's uh, the, the, the letter after Philippians, Colossians, that I want us to focus on. And particularly just uh, one uh, section. Um, we'll, we'll read from verse number 9. And we'll read down to the end of verse 23. Uh, yes, the page number is page 1182. Uh, 1182 if you're using this Bible here. Um, and what I want us to see in our three talks basically is, I want us to see Paul speaking about the supremacy of Christ in creation, the supremacy of Christ in redemption, and then the supremacy of Christ in the church. Um, and there's nowhere that this comes out more clearly than in his letter to the Colossians. Uh, Paul didn't found a church in Colossae. Uh, it was actually founded by a man called, man called Epaphras. Epaphras had come and he'd heard the gospel being preached. And then he had gone back to his hometown of Colossae. And he had started sharing the gospel with people he knew. Uh, and a church was formed in this city. Uh, so Paul actually wasn't involved in the founding of this church, but he had heard about it. And what he heard about it caused him to give thanks for it, but it also caused him concern. Because one of the big things that is going on in the church in Colossae is that as a small uh, young church, uh, some of the people who were in it, or some who had come into it, were trying to take the Christians away down a pathway of uh, false teaching and they were trying to introduce things into the church that weren't actually part of the gospel and we'll see that hopefully as we go through uh, our three talks so reading from verse 9 Paul says for this reason uh, since the day we heard about you we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding and we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work growing in the knowledge of God 
being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven uh, every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Uh, so we'll finish our reading there. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was uh, reading about uh, a pastor who was on his holidays, and uh, where he went for his holidays, he visited uh, a Baha'i temple. And there was a guide who was taking them around uh, the temple. And the guide himself was a follower of the Baha'i faith, And he was explaining the significance of various parts of the building and also the various religious rituals that were involved uh, in following this particular religious tradition. Uh, The group was then led into a room. And on the walls, all around the room, there were paintings of various men. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, Muhammad, Krishna, Buddha, And then finally, a portrait of Baha'u'llah, a Persian nobleman from Tehran and the founder of the Baha'i faith. Uh, This last portrait was of the one Baha'u'llah who claimed that he was a new and an independent messenger from God, the last of great messengers that God had sent and the one who or before whom all the others, including Jesus and so on, were simply forerunners. Uh, You see, those in the Baha'i faith teach that Jesus was merely a prophet, one who was sent from God, who was meant to prepare the way for God's final revelation to man in the person of Baha'u'llah. Jesus was no greater 
than any of the other prophets. His work that he did on earth was not definitive, nor was it sufficient in securing for man a right relationship with God. You all know, I'm sure, the words of the book of Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. And the teaching of Baha'ism in relation to who Jesus is, why Jesus came, what Jesus taught, what Jesus accomplished, their teaching is nothing new. In common with every other false religion, Baha'ism denies the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. Every false religion has that in common. In one way or another, they deny either on the one hand the full eternal divinity of Jesus or they deny the sufficiency of his redemptive work. Now, the two areas that false religions and the cults still attack today and if you're ever speaking to any Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or anybody like that, this is where they'll always fall short. The two areas that they attack today are with regards to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that was what was being attacked in the church in Colossae. <coughs> the young church had been infiltrated by false teachers. These men were basing their doctrines on their own human wisdom, their own ideas of what God was like and what the spirit world was like. And they had come up with various teachings that sounded very plausible and that perhaps some of the people in Colossae were beginning to think actually sounded right. And Paul learning about this, was concerned in case any of the believers in that city would start to embrace these false teachings. And without going into detail of what these false teachers were actually teaching, all we need to know is this. What they were saying was quite simply, Jesus is not really God himself. And... What he did on the cross, whilst certainly it was necessary as part of what's needed to make men right with God, in and of itself it isn't enough. If you want to really know what it's like to be right with God, and if you want to experience a a real spiritual closeness with God, then you need more than Jesus. That's part of it, but there's other things. That basically is what the false teachers in Colossae was saying and Paul having learned about this was deeply concerned about the influence that these false teachers might have on these young Christians and he wants to warn them and he wants to as it were steer them clear of the soul destroying Scylla and Charybdis in which they could so easily make shipwreck and steer them and guide them through that narrow channel of safety away from the dangers that narrow channel of safety which is the waters of faith in the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus the way in which Paul deals with this is interesting Uh, he doesn't directly attack error rather what he does do is he presses home time and time again 
and he fills the minds of these believers with <coughs> Jesus. Jesus. He holds up before their eyes Jesus in all the glory of who he is, in all the wonder of what he has done. And he knows that if they grasp <coughs> who Jesus is, and if they really lay hold of what he has done, he not need to attack the error. Because they see Jesus as being sufficient and being supreme. This church was young in the faith. It probably wasn't as well grounded in the doctrines of the Christian faith as it would later become. And what is needed in the face of and with a view to overcoming these false teachers is to be given a clear and solid and biblical and apostolic teaching about the person of Jesus and about the work of Jesus. And as Paul focused in on that subject, that's what we're going to do, uh, God willing, over this weekend. And I hope that by Sunday afternoon, having looked at what Paul has to write here, we will be able to say, Hallelujah, what a Saviour. What a Saviour. So this evening I want us to look at the uh, supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus in creation. In creation. In verse 14, uh, Paul has been speaking about God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption. And that person, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's still Jesus that Paul is talking about when he comes to make his next statement in verse 15 there. You'll see that it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, the false teachers are saying, with regards to salvation, with regards to you being made right with God, with regards to you, enjoying a really close relationship with God and experiencing that on a really good level, Jesus isn't enough. Something more is needed. Jesus can only bring you so far. He's like the first rung on the ladder. But you need something else to have a really deep knowledge of God and a really close walk with God. Well, Paul just blasts that out of the water. How does he do it? He begins by getting his readers to look at who Jesus is. He says, Jesus is the image of God. The <coughs> image of God. That is an amazing statement. It's a statement that I suppose we become so familiar with that the truth doesn't really impact upon us the way it should. The word Paul uses here, it's translated image, is the word icon. It was used of a portrait of a person or of a statue of a person. And the portrait of the statue was an exact likeness, an exact copy, an accurate representation of the person or the thing that was being portrayed. You remember whenever Jesus was asked whether or not it was right to pay taxes to Caesar, and he said to those who were challenging him, give us one of your coins. And the boy gave him a coin, he says, right, whose inscription is on it? And they replied, Caesar's, whose likeness is on it. One side of the coin, there was a visible representation, a portrait of the emperor. And it is the word iconer that Jesus uses, whose likeness is on it. Paul says, God is invisible. He cannot be seen with the human eye. He's a spirit being. 
John tells us in John chapter 1 verse 18, no one has ever seen God. But Paul is telling us here, Jesus is the one who shows us exactly what Jesus is like. He's like a living portrait, a, a, a there for your eyes to see, accurate, visible representation of God himself. Jesus, or sorry, John said, no one has ever seen God. But he goes on to say this, God, the only begotten, who is in the bosom of the Father, in other words, God the Son, Jesus, he has made him known. And again, the word that John uses there is very, very important. The word that's translated made him known. It's the word exegesis. Now, Johnny and Mark, I'll tell you that whenever you're in theological college training to be a minister, one of the subjects that you study in pre- is preaching. And one of the most important aspects of preaching preparation is what is called exegesis. Exegeting the passage What does that mean? Well, in exegesis, you study the passage with a view to you fully understanding it as best as you're able so that when you come to preach it, you're able to set before those who are listening to you exactly what that passage is saying, making it clear so that everyone knows exactly what it says. The preacher's job is to reveal what is there. And John says, the only begotten of the Father, he has exegeted him. He has revealed him. He has made him clearly known. In the Old Testament, God came down among and revealed himself to his people in the Shekinah glory in the temple. Remember whenever Solomon built the temple and also in the tabernacle before it, God came down and presented. was present among his people, the Shekinah glory, the cloud where God's glory was revealed. That's how God made himself known back then. It's interesting. God gives the fullest and most complete and indeed the final revelation of himself in the person of Jesus. How do we know that? Well, John chapter 1 and verse 14 tells us, the word became flesh, a reference to Jesus becoming man, the incarnation. The word became flesh and he dwelt amongst us. Well, the word dwelt there is the word tabernacled. John sees Jesus as God coming down among us to reveal himself. The writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 1 and 3, speaking about Jesus, says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's the ESV. The NIV translation is the exact (coughs) representation of his being. (coughs) Jesus shows us God. He says to Thomas in John 14, Thomas says, show us the Father. Jesus says, Thomas, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. He is the image of Of the invisible God. Paul doesn't say he was the image. As though he's no longer. Regarded as that image. Superseded by someone else. Who has come to make God known. In a higher way. No. And he doesn't say he is an image. One among many. 
He is the image of God. The supreme, fullest, clearest, most complete revelation that God has ever given of himself to human beings. So, if we want to know what God is like, Paul says, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He's the image of God. You'll not get anything that will reveal anyone who will reveal God any more clearly than Jesus. But as well as saying that Jesus is the image of God, he also says, you'll see there, he is the firstborn over all of creation. Now I don't know whether here in Letterkenny you're tortured by the JWs, Jehovah's Witnesses or not. We certainly are in Enniskillen. They're up in Enniskillen every Wednesday standing at the uh, Diamond there. And one of the members of my congregation takes an hour off work every Wednesday to go up and annoy them <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sort of throw Bible texts at them and challenge them about their views. Well, this is a favourite text of the Jehovah's Witnesses. He is the firstborn of all creation. They believe Jesus is not eternal and that he is not the true and living God. They say he is a spirit creature an exalted angel who had himself a beginning. Indeed, he was the very first creature that Jehovah God made. And they'll say to you, look, open your Bible. Where do you want me to open it? Turn to Colossians 1.15 and read it. So you open your Bible at Colossians 1.15 and it says, he is the firstborn over all creation. And then they'll say, right, now turn with me to Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, what does it say there? And you open your Bible and it says that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. And then they'll say to you, clearly Luke 2 and 7 talks about the firstborn son and it means the first child that she had. It's speaking about an event in time. It's a chronological reference. If you go to Colossians 1.15, surely, surely it must refer also to an event in time. Jesus is the first of God's created beings. So what do we do? How do we answer that? Well, what the JWs fail to do is they fail to interpret this verse in its immediate context and also in the light of the wider context of the teaching of the rest of the Bible. Look at the immediate context. Paul goes on to say, Jesus is the creator of all things, verse 16, and that he is before all things. Well, if Jesus is the creator of all things, how can he have created himself? (coughs) But not only that, he says he pre-existed. He was there before anything else existed. And he's echoing here the words of John in John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was face to face with God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then the the term firstborn, and this is particularly so in Jewish culture. The term firstborn was a term that denoted the one in the household who is designated as heir of the family. 
and who occupies, therefore, in the family the place of honour. In other words, the idea of firstborn in Jewish culture is not that of being first chronologically, but rather first with regards to position, with regards to rank. Its emphasis is priority not in terms of time, but in terms of honour. The firstborn son in Jewish culture was the son who had the right of inheritance. And that was not necessarily the son who was born first chronologically. How do we know that? Well, whenever Jacob had two or whenever Isaac had two sons, he had Jacob and he had Esau. Who was born first? Esau was born first. But who was the firstborn? Jacob was the firstborn. Even though he wasn't the firstborn. He was the secondborn, but he was the firstborn. (laughs) He was the firstborn because he was the one to whom God had given the inheritance. He was the one who would have honour over Esau. Even though Esau, chronologically in time, was the firstborn. So in Jewish culture, the firstborn pointed to the one who is the one of high honour within the family. Now, Psalm 89 and verse 27. You probably know that in the Psalms, Hebrew psalmody, Hebrew poetry, is characterised by what's called Hebrew parallelism. Right. So what you have is you have a statement in the first line and then you have another statement in the second line. And what happens is the second line explains the first line. Right. So when you go to Hebrews, or sorry, Psalm 89 and 27, it says this. God is speaking, and he's speaking about the Messiah. And he says this, I will make him my firstborn. Right? The next line says, the highest of the kings of the earth. So the second line interprets the first line. I will make him my firstborn. That means the highest of the kings of the earth. In other words... He is going to be the one who is in the highest position of honour, who is exalted over above everything else, outranking all others. So when Paul says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's not saying that Jesus is the first creature that God made. He's saying Jesus is the one who is exalted above, who rules over, who occupies the place of the highest honour in the whole of the created order. There's nobody like him. Everything is subject to him. That's what Paul is saying. And then in verses 16 and 17, he gives the reason why that's the case. For, which means because, by him all things were created. In heaven, on earth, Visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is in the position of highest honour over all creation because all of creation (coughs) was made by him. And Paul doesn't want anybody to be in any way misunderstanding with regards to this. He could simply have said all things were made by him and left it there. But he doesn't. 
I mean, after all, all things means all things. But just in case there's somebody in the congregation who's a bit slow in picking things up, Paul says, now I'll explain it a wee bit to you. And because there's false teachers around, I want you to make sure you know what I mean by all things. It includes things that are visible, things that are invisible. It includes what Paul calls thrones, dominions, rulers or authorities. And it doesn't really matter what that means because there's been a lot of debate about what it means. But what Paul is really saying here is this. All other things in creation, whether they're spirits or powers or rulers, Jesus brought them into existence. They are subject to him. They are subordinate to him. He is greater than them all. He's supreme. Nothing has independent existence apart from him. And what Paul is getting at here is he's trying to lift Christ up for them to see how (coughs) gloriously amazing he is. He doesn't even positively attack the false teachers. He says, I'll show you how great Christ is. And then he goes on and he reminds his readers that Jesus not only created all things, but that he both precedes them and he sustains them. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him All things hold together. He's before all things. He means Jesus predates them. He was there before they even existed. So even before there was a created order, even before there was time as we know it, Jesus existed. Unlike everything and everyone else, Jesus didn't have a beginning. And what Paul is alluding to here very clearly is Jesus' eternal existence. And there's only one being that can have an eternal existence, and that is the divine being. That is God. And so in John 1 and verse 1 you read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was was God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that has been made. You remember the words of Jesus in John 17 when he's praying to his father in what's known as the high priestly prayer. Father, glorify thou me with your own self with the glory that I had with you before the world was before the world was even created. Jesus is referring to a time before the world even existed. And he's saying, I was there with you, Father, even before there was anything. And then Paul goes on and he says, and in him all things hold together. In him all things consist. Everything in the world is held together by Jesus. Whenever I was young, I went through a phase of being very interested in building model airplanes. You know the airfix kits you used to get? Some of you have been old enough to remember those. Maybe they still, they still get them, I don't know. And I would save up money and every month or so I'd go out and I'd buy a new kit and you'd open up the box and you know what it's like, all the wee things and you break them all off and they're all over the place. And you try and put them together and if you 
get them in anyway together, they'll all fall apart unless you use the glue. And you put the glue on and you put the bits together and if you do it right, it all holds together perfectly. The glue holds it together. Well, if you like, Jesus is the one who holds everything in this world together. Nuclear science tells us that all substance in the universe is constructed from three <coughs> fundamental little particles. Protons, electrons and neutrons. They are the basic building blocks of all matter. And forgetting about the electrons for a minute, the protons and the neutrons are inside the nucleus. And by the laws of science, they should be repelling each other and splitting apart the atom. But they hold together for some reason. And scientists tell us that for some reason this shouldn't be the case. In the 30s, they concluded that Colm's law of mutual repulsion between objects is at work in the nucleus of every atom, trying to destroy it from the inside. Now, in more modern times, we have figured out how to negate that force that holds it together and to allow the atom to shatter. And that is called a nuclear explosion. Right? <coughs> but scientists also tells us that there's another force in the nucleus that fights against the force that would naturally split it together. And they call it nuclear glue. A really scientific term. <laughs> nuclear glue. And they haven't the faintest idea what that is. It should burst apart, but it doesn't. It holds together. Two conflicting laws present in the very thing that builds the universe. One, it should be pushing it apart, but another one that overrides that, that holds it together so that there can be things matter. Carl Darrell, a physicist with the Bell Labs in New York City, said, these nuclei have no right to be alive at all. But they are alive. Something is holding them together. I'd like to introduce you to that something. In him, all things hold together. Jesus is, and I say this reverently, the nuclear glue of the universe. Do you know that you know tonight more about this aspect of physics than all the physicists in the world who have alphabets after their name? They don't know what that nuclear glue is. You do. It's Jesus. If Jesus was to take his controlling power away from this world and no longer sustain it, no longer hold it together, the atoms would explode from within. Do you know that if the earth in its rotation slowed down in the slightest degree or if it was speeded up to the slightest degree you and I would either freeze on the one hand or we would burn up 
on the other. It has to rotate at exactly the same speed constantly. Why does it do that? Because Jesus holds all things together. If the temperature of our sun changed a few degrees from the 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit that they reckon it is, our earth would burn up or it would freeze. Our earth is tilted towards the sun at an angle of 23 degrees. That enables us to have four seasons and if it wasn't tilted at that degree, then vapours from the ocean would move down over the north and the south, piling up the continents with ice. You couldn't have life. The moon is at an exact distance. And if it didn't remain at that distance, the ocean tides would drown us. By him, all things hold together. Does anybody know how big the sun is? Well, let me try and give you some idea. Imagine being able to cut a wee hole in the sun and put things into it. Well, you could put into our sun 1,200,000 Earths. And you would still have room for 4,300,000 moons to lie around in it. That's big. The nearest star to us is 200 billion miles away. The North Star is 400 billion miles away. And one particular star, Beltelagauze, is 880 quadrillion miles away. That's about as far as from here to Beltelagauze. <laughs> and science says that this star is so big that its diameter is bigger than the Earth's entire orbit. <coughs> now that's an awful lot of material. By him all things were created and by him all things hold together. Your saviour, Jesus, is not just somebody who hung on a cross. He is glorious. He is supreme. He is amazing. <coughs> what a contrast to the false teacher's view of Jesus here in Colossae. They were saying, Jesus is a created being. He's only one of a whole lot of emanations from God. We can't get to God and God can't get to us and Jesus is just one of a step that we have to take. He's not enough on his own. And it's probable, although we can't say for sure, but it's probable that it's to this stupid teaching of these false teachers that Paul is alluding when he says in verse 16, thrones and dominions and powers and so on. <coughs> he is showing the readers the supremacy of Jesus over all things. There's none greater than him. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. He is eternal. No beginning in time, no end to his existence. Everything that has been made is held together by him. And all things have been made, look at verse 16 at the end, for him. They were created with a view to him. In order that they would glorify him. Now, 
if Jesus is supreme over all things, and he is, then doesn't it follow that he is also sufficient for all things? In other words, Paul says, you Colossians don't need to be looking to or depending upon anything or anyone else with regards to your spiritual needs. These false teachers are, take, are talking about other spirits, other divine beings, angels, powers, and so on, to which you must look, whose favor you must seek, and upon whose power you must depend. No, says Paul. No. Jesus is all you need. If you have Jesus... You have everything you need in this life and everything you need in the life to come. Some of you may have the commentary written on Colossians by J. Arthur Phillips in the Welland series. He sums up the underlying theme of this letter, calling it Christ all-sufficient. And I would say to you folks, beware of having any kind of a scaled-down view of Jesus Always think great and lofty thoughts of Jesus because he is great. And because he's great, he's greatly to be praised. You see, if, if, if you have proper thoughts of Jesus, you'll be kept from almost every heresy there is because every heresy in one way or another seeks to diminish, it seeks to in some way reduce Jesus and bring him down. The Bible always lifts Jesus up and exalts him to the highest place. Now maybe something practical to draw out of that. Because Jesus is supreme in creation, because he's sufficient, he's able, as he governs his creation, to control everything that goes on in it, Because of who he is, he's able to meet all our needs. If he governs the whole of creation, then he must also govern the minutia of our lives in creation. You can't govern the whole unless you govern everything that's within. And so, for example... Whenever you're going through times of trouble, when you're facing major problems, when you're wondering what to do, who do you turn to? Upon whom can you depend for help? Well, they ask the questions, the answer, doesn't it? Jesus. He is the one who is in control of everything that happens in our lives the psalmist says in Psalm 31 my times are in your hands and what hands to be in the creator of all things the one who holds all things together the one who governs all things what strong powerful and at the same time what tender and what loving hands they are This is the Christ that we worship. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who is the firstborn over all creation, one who is the highest of honours. 
By him all things were created. Do you want me to explain what that means, says Paul? Things in heaven, things in earth, visible things, invisible things, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. All things were created by him. <coughs> by him all things are held together. You know, there's times whenever we listen to a talk, there's times whenever we listen to a sermon, and it's clear from the message that God wants us to go away and make needed changes to some aspect of our life uh, so that we will become more godly, more sanctified. We think right now, there's an area I need to go home and I need to pray for help to work on that. And this is the practical application of that. There's also other times when God the Holy Spirit, having shown us the greatness and the power and the wonder and the majesty and the glory of Jesus, simply wants us to bow down in worship <coughs> and adoration at the feet of Jesus. He wants us to be so enthralled with the glory of our Saviour that we say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven beside you? And there is no one on earth that I desire beside you. And if Jesus is to be worshipped and adored for his supremacy and sufficiency as our creator, which is what we've just seen, how much more, how much more, brethren, should he be adored for his supremacy and sufficiency as our saviour? And in the will of God, that's the thing we're going to look at next because that's the very thing that Paul goes on next to speak about. Not only is this Jesus supreme in creation, not only does he make all things and hold all things together and he, he governs all things, this Jesus is the one who brings you to God and you don't need anybody else. He is supreme. He is sufficient. And in the will of God, tomorrow we'll see these, these things in redemption. We don't sing hymns, we're RPs, but I'm going to quote a hymn. Oh come, let us adore him. Oh come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Trust that God will bless these thoughts to our hearts. Amen.